Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the 1968 Golden Globe race. A race where men would try and circumnavigate the world alone and be the first one to make it back. Nine men would set out, but only one would finish. The rest would face madness, shipwrecks, and in one case, death. So this is one of these events that now I've looked into it, I can't really believe I've not heard of it. Like there was so, there's so much coverage of it out there and it's inspired so much books and films and, and everything like that. But I don't know, I just had never really heard of it. And so I've obviously just been a bit of oblivious because it, it, it's everywhere <laughs> now that I've seen it. And so well, I'll just talk a little bit about the build up to the race. So in 1967... Francis Chichester set off and managed to circumnavigate the globe with only one stop in Sydney to fix his boat. So it, it inspired a lot of of people at the time, and they were like, "Right, that's amazing! Someone can can get all the way around the world by themselves." But they did. He did stop. So basically, the next trip would have to be someone trying to do that, but without stopping. And so the Sunday Times, the newspaper, decided to start a competition in 1968 for the solo non-stop circumnavigation. So each entrant would have to race solo on the vessel of their choice and they couldn't stop and they couldn't have any outside help in terms of assistance if anything went wrong. So they basically had to set off with absolutely everything they think they would need for this entire circumnavigation, which would take many months. Uh, And it was against the rules if they wanted to stop anywhere on land or if they had any help at all. So even if someone like gave them some extra supplies or anything like that, then then that would mean that they would be out of the competition. And it was up to the competitors when they actually set off. So there were two two prizes, basically the first prize, which was for the person who did it first. So the person that reached uh, England first in this uh, circumnavigation would get this trip, this big trophy and obviously have the gravitas, the <laughs> excitement of, of winning. Um, and then they had the person who did it the fastest, so the shortest elap- elapsed time. So it didn't really matter when they set off as long as it was the shortest elapsed time within that time period. So they were allowed to leave uh, between the 1st of June and the 31st of October. And yeah, the hope was that they would they would get around. And so the route would take them. Uh, it would be generally out of the UK. They could leave from anywhere uh, within the UK. And then they would go down the Atlantic Ocean underneath the Horn of South Africa. So down by Cape Town. Then basically they would go around the world down below New Zealand and under Chile. So they'd go, they'd circumnavigate it quite quite low and then they would basically pop back up uh, into the Atlantic Ocean once they've uh, gone under South America. And what this meant was that the majority of the sailing for the actual bit around the world would be in what they would call the Roaring Forties. And the Roaring Forties was, is that bit of latitude around the world and it is, Famous for very dangerous seas, uh, so they're not particularly enjoyable seas to be on, and they're a constant, constant storms, and it, it's not a very safe place to be. So it would definitely be a challenge. Out of all of this, nine sailors eventually ended up signing up for the race, and they all took different tacks and ideas, and 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 went off in different boats. So I'm not going to go through all of the 
different boats and the different things on the boats because I'm not a very good boat person. I I fully admit that. But from my very bad understanding, I think the thing with boats as well is that I'm just... I don't know. I don't find them hugely interesting in terms of like their makeup and stuff. So even when people like I watch videos to try and understand, but just all goes out of my head. But basically they were all sailboats. So they're all pretty small boats. Kind of look like yachts to me. I would call them yachts, but I could be very wrong. Uh, They were all small enough so that one person alone could obviously handle them and manage the navigation within them. Um, And they were called many different names. So there were catches. Uh, schooners, which I always just associate with a small pint glass, and a trimaran. So there, so yeah, there, there's loads of stuff out there on all the boats and boat things. So if you're interested in that side of the story, have a Google. Look through the uh, notes that I put at the end of this. Out of all of the nine that set off, John Ridgway, Shay Blythe, Bill King, Alex Carrozzo, and Loic Fougeron. Uh, all basically didn't make it out of the Atlantic. So they all set off with the intention of obviously sailing around the world, but uh, none of them made it Made it even, even down the bottom and around South Africa. And for these guys, it was a real mix of, of problems that they came across. So uh, there was some of them got quite ill uh, and had to return to land to get treatment. But a lot of them were, their boats just weren't suitable for the conditions and it was very hard for them to manage their boats and fix them. And it also just was a lot harder than they thought. Like once they started sailing, it was clear that they were alone. It was a very lonely, quite horrible journey where they basically had to be switched on all the time because you're sailing nonstop, right? And you're by yourself, so you can't you can't sleep for very long because you've got to make sh- get up and make sure the boat's not going to collapse. Uh, you have to fix any problems yourself. You have to navigate yourself. Like it's just a lot. And so yeah, a lot of them didn't didn't make it and didn't carry on. They basically all just turned around and, and went home, which yeah makes a lot of sense to me anyway. <laughs> probably not to them. They were probably quite disappointed. And so this left four competitors, who we're going to talk about in more detail. Uh, and these were the four that were, were involved then for the majority of the race itself. So we start off with uh, Robin Knox Johnson, Johnston. Uh, and he was a British merchant marine officer. And he was quite experienced, quite an experienced sailor. Um, I was going to say a boater. No, a sailor. And he, uh, yeah, was, was quite prepared. He actually really wanted to do this type of trip even before this race occurred. So he actually uh, really kind of proposed this type of this type of trip and he was very, very keen uh, to do it. He was pretty much ready as soon as they're ready and he was the first to set off from the UK. So he was off on his way basically as soon as he could. The next person was uh, a man called Nigel Tetley. And he was a Royal Navy officer and he was racing on a boat called Victress. And that was the boat he and his wife actually lived on. <laughs> um, and he had sailed it extensively uh, around around the world. And so he had a lot of experience, a lot of um, a lot of knowledge about about sailing and, and, and how to how to do this race. Next, we had Donald Crowhurst, and he was a British inventor, and he had made this like successful navigational aid that's used within sailing, and he basically saw this race as a good opportunity to try and publicise the product. 
And what he decided to do was to basically make like a custom boat that he could take and race. And it would be an advertisement for the uh, little contraption that me he had made, but also would be an advertisement for the type of boat. And so he made the, uh, made a trimaran. And the idea with that was that it would be really fast and potentially unstable. But he did end up like fitting this like inflatable balloon to it so if it like collapsed the balloon would pop up and it would it would write itself anyway it was trying to be very inventive and and innovational and so but he was quite tight on funds and the time it was taking to build his boat was taking forever so he actually ended up mortgaging both his house and his business in order to build this custom boat and the hope was that they would get it at June, July, August, and it, and it basically just get, kept getting pushed later and later uh, until he, he basically started right at the end. So he started at the end of October, uh, and it was generally accepted that the boat probably wasn't particularly well constructed um, because it had, had been rushed out. And then fourth, finally, uh, was Bernard Mon- Montissier. And he was a very famous French sailor and he had already sailed his boat Joshua from France to Tahiti and back around the Cape. So he had a load of experience, a load of experience by himself and he was very much considered a front runner for doing this successfully. And he had a lot of support behind him and he'd already written two successful books about sailing. So he had a lot of a lot of support and publicity. But his problem was he wasn't really sure about like the concept of a competition. Like he believed in, you know, the beauty of sailing and and being out there in in nature rather than kind of competing. All four of them set off successfully from Britain in time for the race. And at this beginning bit, they were all very slow (laughs) because they were all just so laden with food uh, and supplies that they would need for the many months ahead. And they all had boats which had radios, but the radios generally were quite patchy uh, and it was quite hard for them to communicate their progress to uh, the Sunday Times, which it could report on. But they did try and they did transmit their speed and progress uh, to the paper and that they would then be published. Uh, and they, they also communicated by, um, they would like throw like packages of like photos and transcripts and recordings at pas- passing ships and they would then post them back to the UK for them so that then they had all the content that they were able to publish but as they continued sailing they all kind of came up against a lot of issues their keels were breaking uh, and in one case Knox Johnson had to like dive like dive under the boat whilst it was going and plug some of the bottom of his boat just to keep it going so like Obviously, you can't take the boat out of the water to fix it. So he literally had to like dive under and just keep holding his breath whilst he was trying to like fix the bottom of his boat. Uh, but he was successful in doing that, thankfully. And then I think later, like he was like, oh, I saw a shark. Terrifying. And so, yeah, they weren't they weren't having a great time. I'd say not not many of them. And they hit those lower latitudes. All of them hit the roaring 40s and, and the bad weather really hit. And you know, they all really tried to keep up, keep sailing, but it would have been a really horrendous experience by the looks of it because it was exhausting because it was just, like I said, you couldn't, you had this like self-steering device, which they could use to to allow them to sleep, but that wouldn't really work in the really horrible conditions of the Roaring Forties. So they basically had to like stay awake all the time and they were just constantly like wet and damp and cold and just by the sounds of it, constantly like 
bailing out their boats because they'd been like flooded and just alone in the middle of nowhere with like no communication and yeah it just generally doesn't sound that enjoyable <laughs> um but yeah so Knox Johnson was was doing a great job and he was soon in the lead and ha- but then he had loads of radio problems so he passed New Zealand and then basically just went dark so no one had any idea where he was or if he was okay or anything like that um they just assumed he was carrying on on the other hand Donald Crowhurst, uh, the inventor that we talked about earlier, was having serious problems. So his boat was not going as fast as he expected. So like I said, he had built this boat specifically so that it would be really fast and it would really like show off his business and show off the the investment that he had had in this boat. But actually it was it was going pretty slowly and he really had like a lot of pressure on himself for this voyage. And so what he did as he was was sailing was he suddenly realized that actually he wasn't making the progress that he wanted. He wasn't making the progress that would put his his business and his business partners in a good light. So he decided to start faking it, which obviously you could never do today. But in the 60s, you definitely could. So what he started doing was he basically started reporting positions much further ahead than he was. So he would start saying like, oh yeah, I'm getting close to South Africa or like, oh yeah, I'm making great progress down down this coast, even though he wasn't there. But there was no way that they could really check that. And he would spend a lot of time allegedly like falsifying logbooks uh, so that he had like a logbook of his original journey and then one where he thought he would be. But the problem with this was that once he had started doing it, he felt like he couldn't stop doing it. And he also like just then became really depressed because he'd put himself in this terrible position where he had so many problems with his boat that he knew that he couldn't do the actual round the world race and he knew he wouldn't be successful but he equally knew he couldn't just give up and turn around because he had so much riding on this he had so much riding on it through his business through his house like everyone was relying on him to do well in this race so he was basically having an absolutely terrible time and was yeah falsifying these logs and and saying that he was much further ahead than he actually was in terms of the other sailors at this point so one of the front runners like i mentioned was bernard moy Mottisier, and he was a very experienced sailor and he really like i said really enjoyed his time out on the waves and so unlike some of the other sailors who we've talked about who might be getting lonely or depressed he was just loving his life he was like was in his total element and was just yeah, it was everything that he wanted, basically. <laughs> but like I said, he kind of initially was a bit wary about joining the race. He was worried about commercialization of sailing and about what the race represented. And so he was reporting his location and he was making really good progress. And the papers basically went crazy and were like, yep, he's going to win. He's definitely going to be the first to cross the line. But basically, he totally changed his mind so on the 18th of march he sent a message to a ship off cape town and announced that he was withdrawing from the race and what he said was 
My intention is to continue the voyage still non-stop towards the Pacific Islands, where there is plenty of sun and more peace than in Europe. Please do not think I am trying to break a record. Record is a very stupid word at sea. I am continuing non-stop because I am happy at sea, and perhaps because I want to save my soul. And I think that sums him up pretty well. <laughs> He's just just loves loves the sea and doesn't see the point of of this this silly competition, basically. So he he just withdrew. And he actually like did continue sailing around the world and he definitely did do it, but um he yeah, changed his mind and, and went off and sailed to Tahiti and he actually set the record for the longest non stop voyage. But yeah, I mean I don't blame him. I think I'd rather sail to Tahiti rather than <laughs> sailing anywhere else. That sounds quite pleasant. So as a recap then, at this point, we have got uh, Knox Johnson, who is progressing quite well, but has gone dark. Uh, We've got Crowhurst, who is uh, faking his way, who is not not going anywhere, basically just bobbing around in the Atlantic, but saying he was quite far. Uh, And then we've got Moyne Tissier, who has has packed in and decided not to carry on. Uh, so the fourth person that we, we, we had talked about was Nigel Tetley. And so Tetley was also quite successful in his sailing and he was successfully sailing in the Roaring Forties. And he made a lot of changes to his boat, but it was generally managing pretty well. Um, and there, there was like one weird story where basically he, when he was in a lull, he dived in the water and like spotted a shark. And so he then like caught it and took photos of it and then and then let it go which I just thought was very random and he to be honest like he didn't didn't communicate too much around this but I think it's pretty clear that he wasn't having the best time in one of his messages he did wonder why the hell I was on this voyage anyway so I think he he was also kind of hitting that point of oh what am I doing but he was actually really successful and he made it successfully around the bottom of the earth and then turned back up into the Atlantic Ocean and he knew at this point once he hit the Atlantic Ocean that there were only three of them left in the race like I mentioned. He knew that Knox Johnson was quite far ahead and that he would get the first place because he had set off so early but he uh, Tetley was still on track for that fastest journey uh, trophy and so he was really keen to get that one and to win that the £5,000 prize. But because he knew Crowhurst was still in the race and he knew that Crowhurst was reporting these like fake positions, Tetley was really under the impression that he was in a really tight race and that he really had to push it. So as he hit the Atlantic Ocean on the, on the second time, his boat was in a really fragile state and really what he should have done was really slowed it down, kind of nursed at home, just sailed really slowly and as we know, in hindsight, he would have won because it, he, because Crowhurst was going nowhere, right? And so he, but but because he thought Crowhurst was so much far, farther ahead of him, he basically was like, "No, I've got to, I've got to push it. I've got to go really fast. I've got to go really fast." And so he tried to make repairs, but he tried to to just sail super quickly up to the UK. Uh, but unfortunately, he moved into the Azores and was hit by a large storm. And so he kind of feared the worst because he knew the state of his boat at that point. So he took his sail down and basically like laid inside the boat to wait, which is apparently a way of, of sailing. It's basically, yeah, take all your sails down, go inside and hope that it's okay. 
but he he actually fell asleep and then once he woke up he realized that the hull his hull had been broken and the boat was taking on lots of water and and too much water for him to be able to pump out or be able to to do anything to actually save the vessel so but luckily he quickly raised a mayday uh, and then headed out in his life raft but yeah sadly his boat which was the victress uh, sank 1100 miles away from the finish line so he was really you know he so was so close he'd he'd made such a such an amazing trip uh, but unfortunately was yeah kind of scammed and then and then failed which is really sad uh but yes but he was okay and he uh, was thankfully very quickly rescued by another passing boat Crowhurst then we've got the two left Crowhurst and Knox Johnson who are still in the race Crowhurst continued his deception through all of this time and he then basically claimed that his radio was broken and didn't contact anyone so they assumed that he was making good progress around the world at this point Uh, when he did get in contact he was really vague about his actual position and was kind of like, oh, I'm vaguely in this this area. But he was he was actually still continuing to sail south. But it just became really clear that his boat was just not fit for purpose, and that he would not be able to make it any further if he didn't stop and get supplies and actually fix his boat. Uh, so he wouldn't be able to, you know, turn around and actually make it back to the UK, um, even if he hadn't been around the world. So what he decided to do was he sailed over the Atlantic to South America and he decided to try and stop in Argentina to get some equipment. But obviously this was in like a clear violation of the rules. Well, I mean, everything he is doing is a clear violation of the rules, but this especially in terms of he was getting going to get off the boat and, and get supplies. But And he he did decide to do this, so he stopped and found a small village uh, and signed in with a different name. It was actually managed by a Coast Guard. But somehow this stop and then the help that he got from the people on land somehow never got reported back to the newspaper. So he managed to actually keep this journey like totally under the radar. Uh, and no one knew that he had uh, fixed his boat and, and got this outside help. So his plan then was to basically say you know be like oh i've made it here i am and then and then sail back up to the uk but the problem was is that as he got closer and closer to the finish line he just became more and more like depressed and despondent and really in a horrible place with his decision and his hope really was that he would be able to come last in the race was that he would succeed and and make it all the way around but he would be able to sail in last after knox johnson and after tetley And his hope here was that if he was able to do that, then obviously his like logbooks and his whole route and journey wouldn't be like scrutinized as much as if he came in first. And so when he became aware that Tetley had sank, that's when he like really became depressed and was like, oh no, if I sail back now, I've I've won. I'm going to win this fastest circumnavigation. And people are going to look all over my logbooks and people are going to find out that I faked it. 
And so he, and he knew that, he just knew that other people, when they looked at his logs, even though he had been doing such a good job of, of sorting them, that it would, it would just be clear to like other sailors that have done that route and other sailors that have sailed in the Roaring Forties that he, he hadn't made it. And actually, initially his plan was to at least make it down to the Roaring Forties so he could like film some content and show that he was there. But yeah, so he, he had that pressure. He also had spoke spoken to the UK and was informed from England about like the amount of press that he was getting and they had like made all these celebrations and then it was going to be this like grand return and he was just like oh god I have faked all of this I have got myself into a terrible predicament because I can't finish the race and I can't say I've been lying because yeah he was just in a terrible place basically And he couldn't figure out a way to get out of what he had put himself in. And because of this, he just started, and I think combined with like the loneliness and the isolation, he just started to like lose his grip on reality. And he just, he just didn't have a way out and he he kind of just lost his mind. So he started trying to understand metaphysics and reading all these like weird books. So he just stopped sailing at this point and just was like doing random things on this boat. And he basically was, yeah, using metaphysics and trying to say that a man could overcome constraints of the real world and he would become free by reaching this higher plane. And basically over the next eight days, he would write pages and pages of essays and they would kind of slowly get more and more abstract. And he wrote 25,000 words in eight days, which is a lot, a lot of writing uh, on this kind of nonsensical uh, information and he, he like wrote about like these arguments he was having with himself these arguments he was having with god and yeah it was very clear that he was very much not in a in a good place at this point and then at 10 a.m on the 1st of july he started his final writings documenting the time between now and when he would end the game and just to give an example of, of these kind of final writings, I'll just read a couple out. 10.29. Now is revealed the true nature and purpose and power of the game offence. I am what I am, and I see the nature of my offence. It is finished. It is finished. It is the mercy. It is the end of my game. The truth has been revealed, and it will be done as my family require me to do it. And then later on, 11.17. It is the time for your move to begin. I have not no need to prolong the game. It has been a good game that must be ended at the blank. I will play this game when I choose. I will resign the game. And so these were, were some of his final writings and, and we, we don't actually know what happens next. So when they found the boat, there was there was nothing on board that made it likely that he had been swept overboard or that he had been hit by, you know, a rough wave or anything like that. So it is assumed that he as a result of all of this, uh, committed suicide and jumped overboard. Uh, but we, do, we don't have any proof of that other than other than these writings and other than the fact that the boat was found with, with no other obvious signs of damage. But yeah, it's assumed that he just was in this place and just couldn't, couldn't go any further, basically, and just couldn't, couldn't figure a way out because he had just put so much pressure on himself to do this uh, this trip and he had put so much money into it and like his family was relying on it and uh, you know this this talk about underlying health conditions and that type of thing as well but yeah 
it's just really tragic. I mean, it was like terrible decisions, but I don't think he was a terrible man. But we also don't know. He could have he could have fallen off. We, we don't actually know that he committed suicide, but he did sadly die at that point. He was then found, his boat was found adrift uh, 10 days later. Uh, his body was never recovered, uh, but all of his logbooks and the writings were taken back to England, which is where we found out actually what, what had really been going on throughout all of his journey. So after that, Knox Johnson was the last man standing uh, and he was uh, uh, received both prizes. So he was the first man to successfully make it around the globe. Uh, so he won the Golden Globe for, for being the first person and he won the £5,000 for being the fastest. And the £5,000 today is probably the, the equivalent of about £90,000. So a good amount of prize money. Uh, but what he decided to do was he donated the prize money to the family of Donald Crowhurst, uh, which I think was a very, very nice thing for him to do. Uh, Knox Johnson was also awarded a CBE for his achievements and he continued to sail successfully until today. He has done loads, loads more sailing, has been a really big figure in the in the sailing world uh, and has continued to circumnavigate uh, again after this as well. Sadly, Tetley, who uh, we talked about who had crashed out he had, you know, he had rushed for no reason and the organisers did end up giving him a consolation prize of £1,000, uh, which was very good of them. But in the years that followed, he really struggled to get back into normal life and he was just obsessed with this trip and he really wanted to try and do the trip again. And so what he did was he commissioned a boat to be built but then really struggled to get any financial backing or financial sponsorship for the boat. And he was reaching out to lots of people, getting lots of rejections, and that was quite hard on him. He then decided to write a book to try and raise some funds, but the book didn't go down very well. And so uh, sadly, he soon went missing from his home and was found hanging in some woods near Dover. So there was a, there was an open verdict as a result of that, but it was clear that um, in, in this case, it had very much impacted him as a result of the race. So yeah, two very tragic outcomes, but yeah, the the rest of them continued on. All of the ones that uh, I mentioned at the beginning that, that didn't make it out of the Atlantic all continued uh, sailing as well. So what we learnt, I have read loads of stuff about what we learnt and lots of it is about boats and about sailing and about innovation. <laughs> and I don't understand it. So there is lots. I'll put some some uh, links in the references as to things that might be interesting that we have learnt um, about this. But yeah, not not a lot that I can that I can cover. Uh, but we they continue to do this type of race. So in 2018, on the 50th anniversary of the race, uh, a new Golden Globe race took place, and they had to use similar like yachts and boats. Uh, as Robin Knox Johnson had used, uh, and that was for a prize money of seventy-five thousand pounds in 2018, uh, and it went so well. Uh, they are also repeating it, so uh, they are going to do another race, which is going to take place in 2022, uh, and again follows the same the same format of, of using those types of those types of yachts. Uh, which I think will be very interesting and I will actually keep my eye on it. Uh, you can also go and see quite a lot of the boats. So some of the boats are, are in museums, uh, definitely a couple of them are. Um, and yeah, I would love to 
go and see them. And now, actually, I would understand what what they went through uh, in order to get get that boat there. So there are a few things that I want to call out in terms of references and material for this. Like I mentioned, there's been loads of stuff on this that I just never really realised. So first of all, I read the book Voyage for Mad Men by Peter Nichols. Really good. Really enjoyed it. It was. It does go into all of the all of the competitors, so it covers all nine. Covers them in quite a lot more detail than what I've covered. It covers the boats a lot more and all of the different sailing stuff and the innovation and the that thing. So if you are interested in this story and boats, highly recommend that book. Uh, the other one is a film which is called The Mercy and it was made, I think it was made in like 2018 and I had never heard of it and it film, it stars uh, Colin Firth as Donald Crowhurst and Rachel Weisz as his wife. Um, so a really high profile film that I had just never heard of uh, which yeah, chronicled specifically Donald Crowhurst's journey uh, all the way through until his his demise and that was yeah super interesting and a really great portrayal based on what I read in the book the film was very much true to to what had happened and I watched it on Amazon Prime I think I think I rented it for like three pounds but yes really worth a watch if you want to like see some of this in action and actually visualize it a little bit more uh, as I haven't been particularly excellent with my descriptions uh, so yes, just wanted to call those two out as as things if you want to learn a bit more, but I'll put uh, the other links in the references as well. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much for listening today. If you would like to follow me, please do over on Instagram. I'm at when it goes wrong pod. I have been trying a lot more to to put more effort into my Instagram and posting a lot more about behind the scenes and other kind of facts and photos and stuff from each of the episodes. So do come over there and chat to me. Uh, I'm I'm debating maybe doing some other social media, but obviously it all takes a bit of time. So if there is anywhere else that you think I should be on, then uh, then do let me know and I'll 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 see what I can do. Uh, if you're not on social media, you can still get in contact. You can email me at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. Uh, I would love to hear from you and love to hear any thoughts on the episodes uh, and any ideas for future ones. I would be super keen to yeah hear what you think about this race and whether you. Uh, think you would have done it and and what you think of the outcome <laughs>